0: Welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service, where we report the world, however difficult the issue, however hard to reach. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service. I'm Kavita Puri with 3 Million, the story of the 3 million people who died in the devastating famine in Bengal in British India during World War II. There's a group of friends I've known forever. This year we met up at the end of August and were out walking in a forest, heading to a pub for Sunday lunch. The children had gone ahead. You could feel it was about to rain, one of those end-of-summer downpours, and we were wearing all the wrong clothes. I was at the back of the group with one of my friends. It was the usual chat. How's the family? What was your holiday like? He asked what I was working on. I said, the Bengal famine. Now, my friend is a really smart guy. What's that? he said. So I told him. Around three million Indians, well, British subjects, starved to death in the middle of the Second World War. It was one of the largest losses of civilian life on the Allied side. My friend is just looking at me. Then he says, that's nuts. I had no idea. I'm not surprised by this response. Most people don't have a clue. I didn't really until recently. And the few that do know say something else. Good luck. Rather you than me. Put the two words into social media and you'll see how divisive it is. People have really strong views. It's been called one of the darkest chapters in modern British history. And the debate quickly zeroes in on the wartime Prime Minister Winston Churchill blaming or defending him. I'll be honest, it's scary wading into the subject. But while people argue over the many complex causes, who's talking about the three million people that died? Three million? There's a debate about that. Of course there is, whether it was one and a half million or as many as six or seven. But most agree it's at least three million. Just think about that number. There's no memorial anywhere to them, not even a plaque. That is nuts. It's like those millions of people never existed. Hmm i spent the last year scouring archives and tracking down eyewitnesses for glimpses into that time. They were walking round, wailing, please, Mother,
1: give us some rice water, because they're so desperate.
2: There was no place you could go where you didn't see dead bodies and vultures, as the vultures used to come down and eat these dead bodies. It was revolting, actually.
0: I've discovered cassette tapes that throw new light on colonial responsibility.
3: If those food gains had been distributed to the countryside, good many deaths could have been
4: saved.
0: I've uncovered how pressure was put on the BBC in its reporting of the famine. This is all cut from the Home News Bulletin. They don't allow this to be broadcast. I tracked down the man collecting testimonies from the last survivors before they die.
4: When I went to him and asked about the famine, he passed it to to When I... He can remember his voice, Why you are so late to come to me?"
0: I find the names behind the three million. It is called unhonored and unsung." And he says, "It's actually quite emotional to see this. He says his name was Kishetra Mohan Naik. And I've tried to understand why this history is so controversial today.
1: The Second World War remains the greatest single event in human history. So, if we're going to bask in all the triumphs of the Spitfires and the Hurricanes, then we also shouldn't be afraid to look on the huge blemishes of which the Bengal famine is probably the most conspicuous. Why are there parts of our history that we feel unable or afraid to address, and aren't those precisely the parts we should be perhaps turning to?
0: There is no voice of the three million people. This is the story of the Bengal famine and the three million people, told for the first time by those who were there, farmers and fishermen, artists and writers, colonial British and everyday citizens. is a story we don't know well, but maybe we should. Eighty years on, those who live through it are a vanishing generation. The time to find them is about to run out. Nearly all the testimony you're about to hear has never been broadcast before. As the sun goes down in a rural village in Midnapore, in Bengal... A 15-year-old boy sits on the cold floor of his mud house. It's the start of 1942, and Sri Patacharan Samantha is tired after a day working on the land. On his lap is a banana leaf with boiled rice. It's his one meal of the day. He takes some of the warm grains, squishes them between his thumb and fingers before putting it into his mouth. Rice. For millions like Sri Patacharan, it was the staple food. But in the months to come, these tiny grains, who could afford them and who controlled them, would change so many lives, including his. At the same time, a British woman, Pamela Dowley Wise, lived over 100 kilometres from Sri Patacharan. They were the same age, but their lives were a world away. In 1942, India was British India. The Brits who lived there weren't just running the country. they were also traders and tea plantation owners, industrialists and missionaries. Pamela's family had lived there for generations. Pamela, when were you born? When was I born? In 1926. In India?
2: Uh, number 9 Harrington Street, Calcutta. That was my home, you see
0: calcutta early 1942 harrington street just off the busy chowringi road pamela's house was a large white art deco building full of indian servants
2: The house was um, an English sort of house, beautifully built and everything. We entertained people there because it was lovely, had a lovely veranda, and we'd have lovely meals and
0: things like that. She loved walking her dog by the monument built in memory of the former Empress of India.
2: The Victoria Memorial is where we used to go because lovely grounds and we used to have evening picnics there, and we would have sandwiches and all things done very properly, you know.
0: Calcutta was the capital of Bengal, a province now split between Bangladesh and eastern India, which was at the heart of Britain's colonial enterprise.
4: The prince visited India, and his arrival in Calcutta was the signal for further great demonstrations of loyalty. In keeping with the pomp and splendour of the East.
0: For centuries, the British exported opium, labour and textiles from Bengal for vast profits. Pamela's ancestors had come from England as jute owning lucrative mills along the banks of the Hooghly River. With its grand, whitewashed buildings and colonial street names, Calcutta held a symbolic importance. It was dubbed the Second City of Empire. And so when Britain declared war on Germany...
3: I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street.
0: Calcutta, along with most of the British Empire, was pulled in too.
3: At such a moment as this, the assurances of support which we have received from the Empire are a source of profound encouragement to us.
0: Assurances of support, maybe, but many Indian political leaders were furious about being dragged into the conflict the war would go on to devastate Bengal and the lives of millions of its people. By early 1942, a few months after Pearl Harbour, the Japanese were moving rapidly through Southeast Asia. They'd attacked Malaya, Philippines, Thailand, Singapore and Burma and were getting closer and closer to the border of Bengal. The city Pamela called home... Was soon flooded with new arrivals, preparing to fight the enemy on the Asian front.
2: Calcutta was almost taken over by British soldiers and Americans as well. They were everywhere. They were everywhere.
0: Pamela became friendly with some of them. She took British soldiers by rickshaw to the local market and helped them barter.
2: Because they couldn't speak Urdu, and I could. And so if they wanted to buy something, I would go with them and bargain for them and uh, help them to buy things. I remember American soldiers and British soldiers were in our home and they used to come and have dinner with us and and afterwards we'd play the piano and sing the old songs. And uh, happy days they were.
0: War transformed the city. Labourers came from the surrounding provinces to work in the factories. They produced supplies like ammunition and uniforms. Bengal was already the biggest producer of rice in British India. Now, it was exported in record amounts. The streets became a cosmopolitan mix of Allied soldiers from Britain, America, China and West Africa. There were hundreds of thousands of them, mostly on leave on the way to fight the Japanese. They mingled in jazz cafes and drank whiskey in makeshift bars, like these soldiers recorded by America's World War II National Archives.
1: We would stay at the Grand Hotel, several of us to a room. There'd usually be some British soldiers there singing, drinking and singing, and, and I would join them and pretty soon I'd be singing too. Some of the best Scotch in the world was in, over at Calcutta and gin too you, know, you could get all the gin that you wanted
0: ice was soon in short supply across the city it was hard to keep up with all the cocktails being mixed in swanky restaurants soldiers ate fried fillets of Bechti pulled from the Hooghly River and stuffed with herbs
1: high class restaurant you go in and there'd be five guys turbans on or around there waiting on you you know around the tables and, and it was real good fish
0: This is the documentary from the BBC World Service about the 3 million people who died in the Bengal famine 80 years ago. When you see Iran close up, you realise just how complex a political landscape it is. The Global Story. Smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story.
4: It seems that Iran's strategy at the moment is to increase the tension in the Middle East.
0: Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. When Israel does agree to a ceasefire in Gaza, Iran will then worry about Israel then turning its sights towards Iran again. The Global Story. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. It wasn't just soldiers who enjoyed the good life. Partha Mitter was a young Indian boy whose parents socialised with Calcutta's elite and some of the American officers. They danced together at one of the new clubs where different races were allowed to mix.
1: My father was a well-known dancer, waltz particularly, and then other imports, Roomba and samba and so and on. And
0: your mum would dance in her sari?
1: Yes, specially tailored blouse for the sari. <laughs> uh, I mean, they were out at least three nights a week.
0: So I had a great time as I grew up. One American soldier, who he called Uncle Charlie, was particularly friendly with his parents. Partha remembers him pulling into the drive with his army colleagues.
1: They are totally garrulous, Very friendly, and they would um, come at great speed in their jeep and screech in front of our house, jump off. And um, American GIs were always given a lot of sweets, candies and biscuits and
0: chocolates, and he would bring a lot of them for me. For Partha, the American GIs were nothing like the colonial British officers already based in India. Many of them didn't understand how Britain could courageously fight for freedom while also pursuing, often repressive, colonial rule. They were much more
1: anti-imperial. Those days, America hadn't become an empire. They, they were really shocked by the whole thing and the British and their behaviour. They always said that.
0: And the new soldiers from Britain, most of whom had never been to India before, seemed different too. Major General Dutchie Kumar Palit of the Indian Army in a 1987 interview from the British Library, remembers how much more open-minded they were, unlike the colonial officers, some of whom he says were openly racist.
3: By the time I joined the army, there was almost no social contact between British and Indian in the army. We were uh, at best called wogs, westernised oriental gentlemen, same army, fought the same enemy, and carried the same arms, but we never mixed. You see, these were colonialised Englishmen, Whereas in the war, thousands of young Englishmen came here who didn't care a damn what you wear, mingled with Indian society if they could eat with their fingers, wear uh, Indian clothes, and learn Hindi, learn something about our music. I don't think I know a single British officer who could understand the difference between a raga and a pop song.
0: <laughs> These were glimmers of a new world. By the Second World War the British Raj was in its twilight years. Calls for Indian independence were louder than ever. Bengal had long been a crucible of anti-colonial activity, but now its streets were full of soldiers in a war no one had asked to be part of. Allied troops had started arriving in large numbers once Singapore, a major military stronghold for the British, was taken by the Japanese in early 1942. Prime Minister Winston Churchill called it the worst disaster in British military history. It was a huge surrender. Then Burma, right on the Indian border, fell too.
4: The hideous sight of a fire-swept Burmese town by night. The awful result of a Japanese attack on a completely undefended town from which the population fled as the place is gutted by wholesale fire.
0: The rice supply from Burma... significant amount of imports into Bengal came to an abrupt halt. War was already reshaping India's economy. The colonial government was printing money to pay for all the extra resources, issuing a sterling IOU to be paid after the war, and inflation was rife. The loss of Burma's cheap rice put this staple food even further beyond reach for many of Bengal's poorest people. And then things got worse. The fall of Burma meant the Japanese were now on the border of eastern India. In just a few months, they'd swept through Southeast Asia, taking local food and transport to help fuel their advance. The British were terrified that India, so crucial to the war effort, was next. The empire needed to be defended, so they took drastic action. The consequences were severe. Colonial authorities ordered the seizure of surplus food and transport from villages across the Bengal Delta. It was known as the denial policy, and the aim was to make sure that if Japan invaded, they couldn't access food and transport. In this rare recording from the 1970s, Debatosh Das Gupta remembers it being carried out.
3: The troops went to the villages, they forced the villagers at the point of a rifle to surrender their food grains, to surrender their other foodstuffs, vegetables, eggs, fish.
0: Food was handed over peacefully, sometimes in exchange for money. But in other areas, troops went house to house. And it wasn't just food they were after.
3: The British forces, armed forces, they practically seized all the boats of Bengal.
0: Boats were confiscated or destroyed. Without these tens of thousands of vessels, fishermen couldn't go to sea, farmers weren't able to go upstream to their plots, and artisans were unable to get their goods to market. Critically, rice couldn't be moved around.
3: By forcibly taking away most of the food grains from the rural areas and destroying the boats, which were the main communications in Bengal, for transport of the food grains from the villages to the towns. The British rulers created
0: an artificial
3: scarcity of food.
0: Some of the seized rice was sent to Calcutta, where soldiers and wartime workers were already putting pressure on food resources They had priority status for food. And as rice became more scarce, it was hoarded for food security, but mostly for profit. The war was already driving up the price of rice. After denial, it spiralled even higher. Debatosh, a fervent campaigner for Indian independence, saw how the British denial policy fueled calls for freedom. He says the war meant nothing to the villagers. Why should they be made to pay a heavy price? The
3: villagers, the masses, peasants, they also got infuriated. Gradually, the hatred amongst them against the British rulers also was more and more deepened. As a result, the British troops, they could not move out freely because they were always afraid that the people will jump upon them, the people will attack them. That was the psychology of the British troops also.
0: Long-standing tensions were rising. There were as many colonial soldiers policing the rest of Indian population as were fighting the Japanese. But for the British, keeping a tight grip on India, its food, its transport and its people was vital for controlling its empire and winning the war. Midnapore was one of Bengal's rice-producing districts. Life was slower there, much of it revolving around the river. By October, the rice fields were turning from green to gold. In a few weeks, they would be harvested. Many of those who lived there, like Sri Paticharan, who we heard from at the start, who not so long ago ate a meal a day of boiled rice from a banana leaf each evening, was now struggling to even eat that. Prices were rising, crops and boats had been seized from across the district, unrest was in the air. And then a natural disaster struck. On the night of October the 16th, there was a major cyclone. Sri Patacharan, voiced here by an actor, remembers it vividly. Stories like these from the poorest and most vulnerable are almost never recorded or remembered.
4: We used to wear shorts with drawstrings, and nothing else. I had a shirt that I wore only if we had to go somewhere. The rains had begun a few days before, a light wind too. Then the rain and winds both started in full force. As the day wore on, the rain and the gusts only got stronger. Our pigeons refused to stay in their groups above the courtyard, They all kept trying to come indoors. I brought them down and into our room. From late afternoon, the branches were falling down. By nighttime, the jewel, the cyclone, was tremendous. Back then, our house had mud walls and a thatch roof. All night, it sounded like cymbals banging above our heads. The jore stopped at around 2.30 or 3 in the morning. When it was over, not one tree remained. We had to cut open the roofs of the houses that had broken down to get people out. Now everyone sought shelter in the handful of houses still standing. I saw the waters of the Kalagai River carrying the carcasses of countless cows and calves and human beings too. No one tried to recover those bodies to find out who they were or where they were from. At that moment, we were all struggling to save ourselves and our own people. As a result of the Jor, all the crops were destroyed.
0: Tens of thousands of people died. Most of the rice in Midnapore and the surrounding area was destroyed, and crop disease decimated much of the rest. Midnapore usually sent rice to other districts in Bengal. Not any more. The deadly cyclone strained a rice supply already stretched by the loss of Burmese rice, rising prices and denial policy. Sri Patacharan's family had no land. They bought their rice from the market. But after the cyclone, prices skyrocketed. They could no longer afford this staple food. He watched traders from the city buy up whatever rice was left. His family's rice reserves quickly ran out. He was desperate.
4: Lots of people in the village had started selling off land to get rice. Those who bought the land were the Jotars, or those who had steady jobs in Calcutta. I had no choice but to leave home. Not only me, but many young people left at that time. I went to Calcutta. (laughs)
0: By the end of 1942, Sri Patatarian was on the move. Around the same time, the most important colonial figure in British India, Viceroy Linlithgow, sounded the alarm with London about the food situation across India and asked for urgent grain imports. Britain's war cabinet was busy with the Allied invasion of North Africa and the fate of Stalingrad. Some food was sent to other parts of India, but not to Bengal. In fact, it was asked to export even more rice for the war effort. As rice got more scarce and more expensive, the crisis accelerated. Over the next six months, thousands and thousands of people would come to Calcutta from the countryside looking for food. It would become a tale of two cities. In one Calcutta... Elite residents and soldiers ate in high-class restaurants. And in the other, people died of starvation in the streets. By the summer of 1943, those two worlds collided. Pamela's walks with her dog through the colonial splendour of the Victoria Memorial were completely transformed.
2: There was no... Place you could go where you didn't see dead bodies and vultures. It was revolting, actually, as the vultures used to come down and eat these dead bodies. And did you stop going to the park? We had to put up with it. You couldn't say, "I'm not going to the Victoria Memorial" because there are dead people everywhere. There were dead people all over Calcutta.
0: Memory is a funny thing. I've interviewed many elderly people about their early lives. As you grow older, the detail of events or trauma may fade, but certain intense recollections remain. The image of the dead, of the vultures, which 97-year-old Pamela wanted to tell me about, is still so vivid for her today, 80 years on. The famine may be largely forgotten in Britain, but Pamela never forgot it. I can see it on her face.
2: I had nightmares, you know of some of the things that happened there. Oh, yes, I used to have terrible dreams. And and the, the the dead bodies would stay there
0: in a mess. Who's going to go and clear up their mess? Nobody. Pamela couldn't sleep at night after what she saw. But her life was unchanged. Sri Padacharan survived, but his life was never the same again. By the time famine swept across Bengal... Ordinary people, even children, were forced into making extraordinary choices, ones we would never wish to make. Choices about grains of rice, which meant the difference between life and death.
1: I asked, uh, how much can I give? It was a situation of nastiness that I had never encountered before.
0: That's next on 3 Million. I'm Kavita Puri. The series producer was Anta Dean. You've been listening to 3 Million, about the 3 million people who died in the Bengal famine 80 years ago. And to listen to the whole series, search BBC World Service, the documentary online, or wherever you get your BBC podcasts.